Welcome to the Global Connection, a Tel Aviv University podcast. Journey with us as we discover how TAU's academic community and friends are engaging with and helping to shape this ever-changing world. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Hannah Worth-Nesher, Professor of English and American Studies at Tel Aviv University, uh, and also the founding director of the Goldrich Institute for Yiddish Literature and Culture. And it is a great pleasure and honor for me this morning to speak with Rabbi Delphine Orvilleur, an inspiring intellectual and spiritual leader. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Delphine, if I may, uh, is a female rabbi in France, one of only a handful, and a co-leader of the liberal Jewish movement of France, affiliated with the World Union of Progressive Judaism. She's the editor of the quarterly magazine Tnua, Revue de Pensée Juive, and she leads a congregation in Paris. She's also the author of several influential books, among them, in Eve's Attire, Modesty, Judaism, and the Female Body, as well as a book on anti-Semitism entitled Anti-Semitism Revisited. And her most recent book is Living with Our Dead, which has been translated into Japanese and Korean and, of course, English, and will now also be available in Hebrew. As a female feminist liberal rabbi in Europe, educated in France, but also in Israel and the United States, Delphine is contributing to building bridges between the diasporic and Israeli Jewish community. She's also co-written a book on Islam and Judaism with a liberal Muslim scholar. All of this so much needed now more than ever. And I just want to quote from Delphine, I try to build bridges between worlds that have stopped talking to each other. But before we get to all of those issues, which I'm very eager to discuss with you, um, can you tell me something about yourself? That is, how did you arrive at your life's work? What path brought you to this moment? And perhaps start with your family or whatever, up to you. <laughs> so um, it's a pleasure to be here, really, and to spend this moment in Israel, this particular moment. Um, I grew up in France. My family comes from different backgrounds. Um, my father's side is really from the like original French jury history, many, many centuries in France. And my mother's family comes from Eastern Europe. They arrived after the war. They were survivors of the Shoah. And I was born in France. And I moved to Israel when I was 17, alone. I decided to come. I studied at the university. So it was kind of like the first season of my of my life. I was uh, studying medicine at the time. Mm. Then I became a journalist. Then I moved to New York. Then I joined rabbinical school. It's been uh, full of turning points and moments. And I was ordained in 2008 and moved back to Paris. And as you said, I became a, a rabbi and, and a writer. But I feel that somehow, yeah, all those pieces of the puzzle connect more than what it seems, what I was looking for in the medical school. And then as a journalist, it was actually what I do as a rabbi. I try to stand by people's side and welcome their narrative as kind of sacred text. That's part of what I try to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. What strikes me about your family background is that on the paternal side, it's centuries in France. And so it provides a certain sense of security or stability. Whereas on your mother's side, it's recent Jewish history with all of the turmoil and upheaval and vulnerability. So uh, it's an interesting combination. I think, yeah, and it has a lot to do with um, the balance somehow that I feel inside me or inside my work that on my father's side it's a story of being um, saved 
um, by Righteous Among the Nations. It's a story of being grounded and belonging to a territory. Um, whereas on my mother's side, it's a story of being uprooted and um, a story of death and devastation. And I feel that as a child, there was inside my family story something that was a kind of irreconcilable narrative that one part of my family was telling me that the neighbor might save me and one part of my family was telling me that the neighbor might kill me. Yes. So I had to figure out how, um, you know, I could bring together those two elements of the family narrative. And somehow I feel that these, these unbridgeable, you know, stories have a lot to do with what I'm trying also to do as a commentator of the mm -hmm. text, you know, the text sacred texts always also ask you to figure out how to reconcile the irreconcilable elements. Yes, yes. So interpreting sacred texts, I understand that during COVID you started weekly uh, talks, lectures on Zoom. Indeed. And could yeah. you tell us something about that and the COVID and how that has also shaped where you are now? Yeah, well, I... I've been teaching for years now. I started a Bet Midrash, a study house, um, first in New York and then in Paris. And during the COVID, as many of us, we had to you know, reinvent the way we wanted to talk and teach and be there for others. And I launched um, a virtual Bet Midrash through the magazine and the association um, I had, I had um, Tnoa, and it became a kind of very weird rendezvous, you know, and, and suddenly people joined that Bet Midrash through Zoom, through internet, yes. and thousands of people were um, connected uh, every Tuesday in France and beyond, in Europe, and Jews and non-Jews. And until today, it's very moving for me. I meet people who tell me, you know, you helped us uh, go through that uh, and confinement, um, uh, people who sometimes you know, have zero relationship to Judaism or religious thoughts. You know, France is known to be a very secular, sometimes perceived to be a very anti-religious country in a way. And it's striking to see that um, this Bet Midrash was a moment of encounter for many. And then many people continue to join the Bet Midrash, even when it was back into, you know, present mode. Um, it's quite interesting. Now I lead a bet, a bet midrash, a house of study, a monthly um, house of study. And we have like 350 people every month come to study with us, Bible and Talmud and Gemara. And thousands of people join through uh, virtual means, uh, much beyond the Jewish community, which is also interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of this, um, of what we managed to create yes, somehow in this yes. moment. So the post or the COVID or the post-COVID book that is now being launched here and that so many people have read around the world, Living with Our Dead, who is the hour in Our Dead? Well, um, it's interesting because there is in French a play on word that cannot be heard in English. When you say in French, living with our dead, you say vivre avec nos morts. It can also mean living with our death. So there is this double meaning, living wow. with our dead and with our death, suggesting that all of us do have to live with the disease, you know, with people who we love and who died and left us. But also I think that each one of us has to live with his or her own death processes. I mean, there's no way we can go through life 
without surrendering part of our life, without, you know, acknowledging that we keep dying, you know, something in us. It's true biologically, but it's true philosophically. We keep on dying. Something in us, you know, leaves us. Sometimes it's an idea we had, a conviction. Sometimes it's a love story. Sometimes it can be, you know, a dream. Um, and, and it's something healthy. You know, we tend to perceive, and I think we're wrong when we do that, we tend to perceive life on one side and death on the other as if those were two separate words that don't have encounters. But I think that actually um, for life to go on, Death processes are essential in our life. Um, you know, as we talk now in our podcast, is everything is okay for us? Within half an hour of conversation, hopefully many of our cells in our body will um, engage in a dying process because this is how we remain alive, actually. So I thought it was interesting to acknowledge that life and death are constantly working hand in hand, and we have to figure out how we engage in a conversation with death, you know, yes. with, with dead ones also, how they remain somehow in a dialogue with us as we continue living. So all of that is, is very moving and universal. Um, and so much of your your work and your life and your, your, your role, your leadership role is within the Jewish people and within the Jewish community. So perhaps this would be a good time to switch over. It's not really switching that much, I think. Death of life is certainly a part of the conversation between the diaspora Jewish community and the Israeli Jewish community. So I, I, I would like to know why that conversation is so difficult and so complicated and seems to be coming even more complicated with all of the recent developments. So that's a, that's a big question but I but yeah. it's a question that is very dear to my heart and I think to yours too yes. um, this question of the dialogue between Israel and the diaspora I'm particularly happy and moved to be here this week because I feel that um, for years now I've been trying to have this conversation and something is like stuck you know each time I come to Israel even though I speak Hebrew pretty well I think I always feel that the dialogue is frozen, interrupted. There's something that I'm trying to 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 teach or to share here, and it gets no it gets no answer. It's as if you know, the conversation was blocked somehow between diaspora and Israel. And I think precisely it has to do maybe with the theme of my book in a way, with with the acknowledgement that just like in the morning process, something in us is deeply broken. Um, you know, for years I've been teaching and writing about what is for me the core of the Jewish identity. The core of the Jewish identity, I believe, is a, an acknowledgement of our brokenness. Like Jews in their history acknowledged constantly um, the uncompletedness of their identity. It seems like a big word, but I think when you think about Jewish history, obviously, but also Jewish rituals, it's always about brokenness, uncompletedness, vulnerability. Moses comes down of Mount Sinai, he breaks the tablet, the temples are built and broken. We get married, we break a glass. We own money, we give ma'asar, like we surrender of part of what we own. A baby boy is born, there is a brit milah, something is cut. Like it's always an acknowledgement that we should be aware of a feeling of owning or being complete 
because something is dangerous in this moment of strength and owning. And sometimes I felt that when I tried to teach this in Israel, it goes against the Zionist narrative. The Zionist narrative, as we know, and we know why, and we totally understand why, is a narrative of power, of strength, of owning, of building, of being complete and back in the land. And I feel that often the Jewish narrative, as paradoxical as it may sound, counters very strongly the Zionist narrative. And I, and, and, and I don't manage to, you know, to engage in these conversations for years. And suddenly, and I would maybe, uh, that's for me the fascinating conversation today with Israel, that suddenly in the current political crisis, something opens. It seems to me that many of my Israeli friends um, suddenly understand what I mean, as if this feeling of um, the system being broken or this feeling of being suddenly the other in a society or something like the end of a powerful and strength narratives enable them to, to reconnect to this ancient story. Hmm. So, so for me, it's a fascinating moment. That, that is a fascinating moment. But let's pursue that a little bit. That sense of brokenness in the diaspora is a result of, we know, history's, history of persecution and so on. And yes, the Zionist narrative is one of completion. The vul- but it's not as if Israelis don't experience a sense of brokenness and vulnerability. Was just two weeks ago, we had Yom HaShoah and, and, and Yom HaZikaron. Uh, and they're having lived here now 40 years. I know there's a constant sense of fragility. So I wonder what kind of, what's the difference between the fragility and and the vulnerability? I just wanted to ask one more thing. The, my sense now of some of the brokenness is that the other is not as it is in the diaspora, the other is the non-Jew. But what's happening here is that the other is within the Jewish people. And that's not unprecedented, but certainly not a, stra- a strain of Jewish history since the Choban. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah, I-, I think you're right. There is a sense of fragility also in this society. And when you watch movies and series and Jewish creativity, Israeli creativity here, you perceive it. But still, there is a kind of um, very strong counter-reaction to the acknowledgement of fragility in the Israeli yeah. society. When I used to live here in the 90s, <laughs> a few years ago, I remember I was struck, and I'm still struck by an Israeli expression that keeps coming back in conversations when people say, um, in Hebrew, it's, it's like, don't be a loser. Or something mm-hmm. like that. It's always the, the fear of being the loser of the story. And for me, it's a striking expression because when I think about it, I do believe in a way that uh, my Jewish experience is a freier experience. Yes. Like, you know, in diaspora, yes. we acknowledge that uh, we've been very often the loser in history, but we manage to transform that into a strength. Like, I think that often Jewish diasporic experience is a way, is a kind of genius way to build upon uh, fragility, vulnerability, being a loser, not being the majority, not being powerful, not having sovereignty. So I think it's interesting that actually we, we all manage with this fragility, but the Israeli language tries to 
figure out, you know, how we can somehow get rid of what exists and is part of a, a life experience. But for me, um, where the conversation today should lead us, and you won't be surprised that I talk like this as a rabbi, is in a way going back to essential ideas of our text and our literature and our tradition. You know, there is this, the most central idea in the Bible, and it's the word that keeps coming back again and again. It's the idea of being a girl. Like, you know, this idea that we, we understand the girl, in Hebrew it's like the, the other, let's call it, we understand the other, because you were the other in the land of Egypt, you know the art of the girl, of the other. Abraham comes to this land and defines himself as ger toshav, like an alien resident. There is always this feeling of being the other, that you remain with us even when we belong, even when we settle, even when we are on the land. And for me, The opposite of the girl is the feeling of being the owner, what we could call in Hebrew Baal or Baalut. If you're a Baal, Baal Bait, if you're the owner, then you forget that inside you there is this otherness. And I think this is exactly, this is a very political, um, I think, analysis of the situation today. You have many people here who claim in the name of Judaism, suddenly, that they have ownership, that they are the owners of the land. I was struck recently in, in the election posters to see that the poster of Otzma Yehudit, of the party of Ben Gvir, was the slogan, Mihen uh, Baale Abayt, who is the owner, suggesting that we the Jews are the owners and maybe the Arabs are not. But it's interesting because this word, Baal, in our text is actually associated with idolatry. You know, the Bible keeps saying uh, you're a girl and don't behave like the Canaanians who uh, give a cult to Baal, the name of their God that we shouldn't serve, is Baal, its owner. So yes. if you become an idolatrous of ownership, then you stop being an Hebrew, according to the Bible. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's a very interesting uh, interesting way to look at political situation, you know, and it's, it's a question of political science and political philosophy. How do you become, like, how do you settle? How do you have sovereignty and strength and the violence that goes with it according to political theories? But still, how do you remain faithful to an ancient Jewish idea of uh, cherishing the otherness inside you? Yes, yes. Well, that clash now of ownership Uh, in Israel is very much split along secular religious lines. Not entirely, but, but in many ways, yes. And the so-called secular side, the basis of many of the ideas go back to France, right? It's the République, yeah. and it's also secularism as almost a, as a sacred concept. So can we talk for a minute about the specificity of France, the French diaspora, and what can Israel learn from that mm -hmm. secular yeah. religious <laughs> split? You have succeeded in bringing religion, some sacredness, spirituality, into a very binary system in France, and we also have a very binary system. So yeah. what do you think? Yeah, you know, it's been one of my biggest challenges when I... Uh, when I'm in America or in Israel, and I try to explain French 
laïcité. That's the, the term for the French uh, secularism. But it's not, it's definitely not the American secularism. And it's obviously very different also from the French system, from the Israeli system. And France system is often perceived to be um, totally anti-religion, but it's more complex than that. There is an absolute separation between religion and state in France. And the promise of the République, as you said, the promise of the French laïcité, could be formulated this way. Um, French history and French Republic promises that each citizen will be able always and in each situation to speak in the first person singular and not in the first person plural. Like in the French Republic, there is no we. It's almost a play on the word like we. The yes, yes, the French. Mm -hmm. There is no we, W-E. Mm -hmm. There is always an I, like as, as a French citizen, I'm, there is a guarantee that I can always say I, I believe, I think, I do. Huh? But I never speak as a Jew or as a collective or as a nation inside the nation, which is very different from the American system that guarantees communities freedom. Like, you know, when I used to live in New York years ago, I was always struck that many people still today start their sentences in America saying, As a, as a Jew, I believe that. As a gay, I think that. As a black person, I consider that. You have that. to have a subject position. Yeah. Whereas, you know, this very sentence is impossible in France. Mm -hmm. Like, it makes no sense. You know, you don't speak as a Jew. I mean, yeah, you can say, I'm Jewish, I'm Parisian, I'm a mother, I lived abroad, I love to eat sushi. You know, you can, you can multiply your affiliations and your identity definitions, but it doesn't make sense to speak in as a community because then it's as if your community was monolithic, as if your community believed something, you know, uh, voted something. It doesn't make sense. So, so there is this absolute promise of deconnection in a way, which is a fiction. We will agree on that. It's a fiction. When, for example, when France says that no religious sign should be worn in public schools, yes, it's it's a you know we suggest that people can leave their belongings at the entrance as if they were leaving their coats. You know, you leave your religious belief. It's it's obviously not true, but we we create a fiction that in this sacred space of the French Republic, this public school, um, there should be no pressure whatsoever coming from any type of community, it should be in a way fictionally neutralized so that we can create a space that is bigger than my belief or yours. So it's like, it's almost, it's almost a religious idea, I would say, yes. because it's a transcendental idea. We create a space that will never be filled by your practice, your belief, your story. It's bigger than that. Yes. Jews in France and around the world now have been experiencing rising anti-Semitism, which requires collective thinking and collective responsibility. So how has the, the rise in anti-Semitism um, affected how Jews in France see themselves? But, but mainly, to get back to the Israeli diaspora conversation, How does that affect how Jews, and I want to qualify that, liberal Jews, how does that affect the way they see Israel? Mm -hmm. Feeling more vulnerable now. That is, 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 let me just qualify that a little bit more. Is Israel, what, what do dia liberal diaspora Jews need from Israel? It's not just a safe haven in case. What kind of Jewishness, what do they need? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I'm not even sure I, I know how to answer um, your question. For sure, um, and we spoke a lot about this in recent years, in the face of the rising anti-Semitism in France, among other places, because we know anti-Semitism is on the rise pretty much everywhere. Uh, it's true that for many um, in the French Jewish community, Israel became um, the place of security, the, the garden the garden state. So some of them moved to Israel. We spoke a lot about the Aliyah process. We, I don't even know the numbers today because uh, uh, some French Jews moved to Israel. Some French Jews took the Israeli citizenship but remained in Paris. Some moved to Israel and moved back to France. So we don't know the, the numbers, but for sure the phenomenon existed. And and it also uh, made the, the link to Israel closer. Like I think that in recent years, f um, French Jews feel even closer to Israel, but it doesn't mean that they feel closer to to the nation, but not necessarily to to the government. I mean, there's part of French Jews, and it's all very often the way French Jews are perceived to be very pro-Israeli government. It's not necessarily true. Um, I think there is also a high level of criticism toward Israeli politics and policy, but but the the relationship is very strong. Also because it's close, you know, I know many people now in France, French Jews will come often to Israel, even sometimes for the weekend, there's very close geographical, intense uh, relation to, to the country. And I think, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's uh, something that is getting stronger. That's why probably the crisis today is so critical, because around me I see that um, uh, suddenly mouse open in France. People who would have never criticized the Israeli government are willing to share their feeling. And some people around me also who support strongly Israel are remaining silent. Suddenly they don't want to they, they don't want to add their voice to Israeli criticism, but um, but the situation is uh, for them um, yeah, a very painful one. Yes, yes. That's why this conversation is so important because the just like in a love story you know because the relationship is so dear so then the dialogue becomes over critical yes. we, have, we have so much to lose yes do you think the term diaspora is still useful the diaspora museum here changed its name right to anu our people it has the notion of dispersal uh is it dated or or is it still relevant um, for me, it can be still relevant, but what needs to change is a certain paradigm um, uh, that is, for me, outdated. You know, this idea that we still hear often in Israel that uh, uh, around the table, the different um, geographies of Jewish, Jewish people would be sitting and Israel is perceived to be kind of the big brother or the head of the family. I think this paradigm doesn't work anymore. Uh, I think, um, um, you know, I think there is a kind of <laughs> patronizing imagery in this that cannot work anymore. The fact that Israel would be perceived as being, you know, the heart, the center, uh, and the rest of the diaspora would be like, a, you know, misled young brother, you know, just like around the Pesach table that you would have the Chacham, the wise son, yes. and the diaspora would be, in the best case, the rebellious, or maybe the one who doesn't even know how to express itself. Depends which diaspora yeah. you're talking about, <laughs> yeah. right? So right. I think it's much more useful to perceive maybe um, um, the Jewish people as, um, as a as a you know, a body with different uh, 
ways to express itself and um and um in in the same way i would you know in the same way that very often as you can imagine i'm in dialogue with the um with the conservative voices of judaism or orthodox voices in judaism and they tend to perceive liberal voices as being um less authentic or less um a pure or less real i don't know i think this is um this is absolute nonsense i think that all those voices and the the, the power of our people comes a lot from its diversity its plurality the way that it always expressed itself in different languages and i think that uh, more than ever and i'm i'm happy to tell to say it to you because i know it's it's dear in your research but i think that this bilingual and multilingual power of the jewish people is our strength and when we erase part of our languages uh, then all of us are impoverished in our yes. possibility to be yes so as we reach a conclusion to our conversation which of course could go on much much longer um let me ask you one one last question in this dialogue between diaspora um uh, and israel what can each side learn from the other what what can israel learn from the diasporic experience so that i think you've already uh, expressed very eloquently about a certain sense of brokenness and fragility but but you know the other way around what 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 can the diaspora learn from israel or well, both whatever yeah. you know well as i said i think that we we yeah we'll deeply need each other but i think we are this moment that i call the brokenness of or otherness that can be perceived as a challenge or a tragedy or can be perceived as a um, an opportunity you know in hebrew there is this magnificent word biblical word mashber which means crisis in modern hebrew but in the bible mashber is a birthing tool like it's a um, it's um it's it's uh, you know where you give birth so actually mashber is the possibility to to create um something new to bring a renewal to the world so i think we really need to perceive this moment as a as this possibility a few weeks ago i heard david grossman speaking at a demonstration and and he said something striking he said for the first time in my life i feel um like a foreigner in my own country and i know that for the israeli ear that sentence sounded like a tragedy but for me this sentence um was almost a kind of blessing yes. i thought suddenly oh no it's wonderful that suddenly my diaspora jewish experience and is very israeli experience can connect in this feeling of um you know this fragility this uncertainties there can be that can be grounds for really new um, amazing discoveries in what we what we could be and what could connect us so on that note on a note of blessing and on a note of how the energy now in israel can be galvanized toward a better future for the diaspora and israel um thank you thank you very much for this conversation it's very important and um wish you well thank you Thank you so much.